get started. Um, let's see, next week we start the Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So that's coming next week. And those of you who are taking the class for college credit, um, I got your little present up here, your exam. <laughs> Three of you, I, I, don't, I forget who all who's taking it for credit, but uh, Christy is. Yeah, she gets, a, she gets a little present here. Hey, Dan, where did you go to seminary? Did you go to seminary somewhere? I did not go to seminary. I actually did not go to seminary. I got a master's in philosophical theology from the university instead. What do you What's that? Liberty. Liberty. Yeah. Liberal Okay. <laughs> Anyways. That's the peanut gallery back there. Is that right? Yes, peanut gallery. All right. Okay, today uh, we're going to be talking about the second coming. So let's go ahead and get started in a word of prayer. Father, thanks so much for a gorgeous day out. Thank you for allowing us to be here to study your word. I pray that you would teach us now in this time that we have together. Thank you so much for your son who died to redeem us and the fact that he's coming again someday. We're looking forward to that in Christ's name. Amen. Um, What we're going to do is we're going to look at the second coming. Now, this is not going to be the full-blown, in-depth, deep, deep, deep study of it. We're going to hit that in... The, the doctrine of last things. But what we want to do is give you a general overview of the second coming. And the reason this is important is because this is part of the person and work of Christ. When we look at the uh, pillars of our Christian faith, those non-negotiable items that we cannot um, in any way, shape, or form compromise on, um, most all of them have to do with the person and work of Christ. All right. You can be fouled up on the timing of the second coming. But if, you're, if you deny the second coming at all, you're not a Christian. If you say Jesus rose again only spiritually but not physically from the grave, you're not a Christian. You can call yourself a Christian because you believe in Jesus, but you're not a Christian. Um, the biblical definition of one who is truly born again is one who believes in the facts of the resurrection, the second coming, the virgin birth. The substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. The fact of his full deity and full humanity. You start denying those doctrines, you're going to find yourself outside of Christianity and eternally outside of the kingdom. Now that's not the politically correct way to talk about it today because everybody wants to make the kingdom of God this massively inclusive organization that everybody can get in. But that's not the case. Remember what Christ said um, in Matthew chapter 7, the way is broad for a lot of people. There's a lot of broad gate prophets out there. They preach an inclusive Christianity. Everybody can be on the road. You hear them on television, Joel Osteen. You hear, you know, Copeland, Hagen, all of these guys. There's no cost. There's no, they don't talk about repentance. They don't talk about the need for forgiveness. They don't talk about your sin. It's a broad gate prophet. And most all cults, almost all, just about every one of them, in some way or another, denies this doctrine, the second coming, the true second coming of Christ. Now, again, we can be messed up on the timing of it, but you can't be messed up on the fact of it. Christ is coming again. Throughout the scripture, again and again and again, there's the promise that Christ says, I will come again. It's predicted in the Old Testament again and again and again. Jesus is coming Again, so let's take a, a quick overview of this. The promise, the promise of Christ's second coming throughout the scripture. 
Well, John 14, 1 through 3, in fact, let's open to that text. That's a very important text that we need to be aware of. I have some handouts here for anybody who needs handouts. Um, John 14, 1 through 3 is a, is a very important text. This is Christ speaking to the disciples in the upper room, um, talking to them about... These, these are really Christ's final words to his disciples. This is the final dinner they're having. He's comforting his disciples. And he's comforting them. Um, because they don't know what's going to happen. Now, Christ does, but they don't. They haven't caught on yet. And Christ says in John chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Put, if you believe God, believe me. Now, again, throughout the book of John, belief is synonymous almost with faith. John is basically saying, if you believe God, believe me. Have faith in me. Take me at my word. In fact, one of the key words in the Gospel of John is believe. It's throughout the Gospel. In my Father's house are many rooms, many dwelling places. Some have mansions. And I remember growing up as a kid, I have a mansion over the hilltop, and I thought of this you know, big palatial palace somewhere. That's not the imagery that Christ is using. Christ is using the imagery from those days of a, a marriage. And basically what happened in those days is if you were going to be married to someone, they would, by the way, usually your parents are the ones that arranged that. And the first time you saw your intended bride or intended groom was at the betrothal when you were um, probably around 12, 13 years old. There would be a betrothal period. And then you would go back and you would build an addition if you're the man, you build an addition onto your father's house, a place for you and your bride to stay. And then when you got that all done and everything was prepared, you would come and get her and take her back to your father's house. And that's the image of Christ is using here. In my father's house are many dwelling places. And I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I'm done preparing it, what am I going to do? I'm going to come back and receive you to myself that where I am you may be also this is the imagery Christ is saying I'm going to go away and I'm going to prepare a place for you and if I go and I prepare a place for you then I'm going to come and back and get you and take you to my father's house now where's the father's house well that's heaven you're, you're dwelling in heaven you're not going to have a mansion in heaven like a palatial things out somewhere on, on a large estate. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a dwelling place. You're going to be with the Son. You're going to be with the Father in heaven. It's the imagery of family. It's the imagery that of... And, and as a woman, you would anticipate the time when your betrothed will come and take you back to his house, his place. And that's the imagery of Christ. It's a very intimate kind of imagery that Christ is using here. But Christ is promising to his disciples, I'm going to go away. But if I go away, I'm going to come back. I'm not going to go away and stay away. I'm going to come back. Now, I'll tell you what, there's no other religious leader in history that's made that promise. Buddha didn't. He's still dead. Muhammad didn't. He's still dead. So are all the cult leaders. They're still dead. Christ said, I'm going to go away and I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. And, and this is God talking, right? So if God's talking here, because Jesus is God, right? Full of deity. That means God cannot Why? So he's coming back. He's going to come back and receive us to himself and take us back 
to the Father's house. Christ has promised that. Okay? In Acts chapter 1, we have another great promise of this. And by the way, I just picked a few of these. I mean, you could go through the New Testament, just about every single chapter someone said in the New Testament, there's a reference or an oblique reference to Christ coming again. This is throughout the New Testament. You can't, you can almost pick a random page in the New Testament and it speaks of Christ's second coming. But in Acts chapter 1, we have the account of Christ's ascension to glory. And in Acts chapter 9, verse, or Acts chapter 1, verse 9, and when he had said these things, Christ is talking to his disciples here, his final words. As he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Man of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Is Christ coming again? Well, the angels said so, didn't they? they? They know what's going on. And as the disciples are looking at Christ going back up, they're being told he's going to come back just like you've seen him go up. Now, how did Christ go up into heaven? He ascended, he ascended physically. So how's he going to come back? Physically. Don't let any screwball tell you that Christ is going to come back spiritually when you believe in him. And that's really what the second coming is all about, is when Christ sort of makes himself real in your heart or whatever. Blah, 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 blah. Don't listen to that. Christ is coming again, physically, to establish a kingdom. Just as he went up physically, he's coming back physically. He promised it, and the angels here are saying it's a done deal. And even the Father knows. Now, now the Father knows the time, right? Did the Father in on this? Well, sure he is, right? Because one of the disciples asked him, said, well, when are you going to come? And Christ said, well, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. In fact, I don't even know, but the Father knows the time. And again, we already discussed it. That's not that Christ is talking about his ignorance. Christ is saying in his incarnation, what did he do? He limited himself. He limited his knowledge to that which the Holy Spirit gave him. But Christ is coming again. He's coming again. And the church, this is, the, this is very important, the church lived in expectancy of Christ's second coming. There's a doctrine that's called the doctrine of imminency. We're going to talk about that when we get to the eschatology. The doctrine of imminency. What does imminent mean? Soon. Unexpected. Any time now. All right. And the New Testament church lived with this Understanding of Christ's imminent return. Um, they did not have this concept that Christ was going to hang, hang around in heaven for a couple of thousand years. They didn't have any concept that the church age that they were in was going to last for two millennia. They thought he was going to come back in their lifetime. They all lived like that. They didn't live with this concept that, well, you know, we might as well just buckle down, take it easy. You know, don't need to worry about things because after all, he's going to come back in a way past our lifetime. No, they didn't think it like that. All of them thought that Christ was going to come back right away. In fact, as Christ is here in Acts, before his ascension, what are the disciples asking him? Is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? They had a, they had, they had a very accurate Eschatology. They understood that Christ was going to establish a kingdom. They, they, they got straight, which most liberals and most theologians today have got all muddled up. They knew that Christ was going to establish a literal, physical kingdom. 
We're going to talk about that in great detail in eschatology. Christ's kingdom is not this. It is an invisible thing. We're part of God's kingdom now. But there's coming a day when the kingdom will be realized. When Christ will reign physically. He will rule. And we're looking forward to that day. And they're thinking, well, now's the time. And Christ says, no, not yet. But they lived in the expectancy of this. So just one one passage on this. And again, you can go through the New Testament and find passage after passage after passage on this. The first Thessalonians, chapter 1. Uh, Thessalonians are Paul, what we call Paul's eschatological epistles. What's eschatological mean? That's a big fancy word. Last things. Eschatos is last. So it's the doctrine of last things. And what Paul is doing in First and Second Thessalonians is talking to the Thessalonian believers about the second coming. That's really what it's about. He taught them about the second coming, about Christ coming back again. And what happened in the poor Thessalonian church is a lot of them got muddled up because they had some guy show up and say, well, the doc, Christ has already come back and you missed it. So, Christ, so Paul has to write these letters to try and help them understand what's going on. And in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10, um, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, listen, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The New Testament church, what, did they, what were they waiting for? The coming of Christ. Now, one of the things that we see today is that the second coming has sort of fallen on hard times in the Christian church. We're not really looking, many Christians today aren't really looking for the second coming. Because life's too easy for them right now. Things are too comfortable. And even there is a movement, I'm reading a book, Why We Are Not Emergent. It's a great book. Why We're Not Emergent, written by two guys who should be emergent. And one of the great dangers in the emergent church is they're so busy worrying about what's going on down here that there's no real anticipation of Christ's second coming. Listen, if you were under persecution, what would you be looking for? The second coming. You're looking for Christ's return. And, and we, need, we need to be involved in it. Now, we've got to be careful, and we're going to talk about this in eschatology. You don't want to pick up every headline and say, oh, Jesus is coming tomorrow because look at the oil prices. Well, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, we can't predict that. But we need to live in expectancy of his second coming because that's one of the things as Christians that purifies us. If you know that Christ can come back at any time, you want to be ready, don't you? You want to be ready. If, if you got a letter from the President of the United States saying, you know, I'm going to be in town and I'm going to stop by and have lunch with you sometime this week, you'd be ready, Right? I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat. You'd be ready. Because you don't know when he's going to come by, right? He might come by. You don't know when. You're not going to wait for the motorcade to show up in your driveway to figure out you better go get something to lunch to ready or something like that. You're going to be ready. And yet, Christ said, I can come back at any time. Now, in, in a sense, he can come back at any time for us at any time because we could die, right? But as a church, Christ is coming again. And one of the things that we need to live in expectancy of, preach, proclaim, and believe, is that this can happen at any time. And we need to be ready at all times. So we're ready at that time. There's passages 
throughout say, you know, you don't want to be ashamed before him at his coming. How would you like him to come again and you not be ready? You not be prepared? There's an, there's an imminency of, of Christ's second coming. And he says, I am coming again. I'm gonna, and, and the thing is, he's going to take people off guard. One of the interesting things, you can go to bookstores and you can find all these books telling when Christ is going to come back again. Don't listen to that stuff. We don't know when. We don't. In fact, I often thought that if you really want to find out when Christ comes again, get all the religious experts, all the theological experts, have them figure out what date he can't possibly return, and that'd probably be it. <laughs> because he's going to come back at a time that you're not going to expect. That's the whole point. He's going to catch people off guard. They're not going to be ready. And the only way you can be ready when he comes is you've got to be ready all the time so you're ready at that time. Or you're not going to be ready. When we study the passages regarding Christ's second coming throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, we find that there are really two phases. Now, how do we know this? Well, it falls out of the text. This is one of those things that falls out of the text. Now, as you read the Old Testament, you would sort of get the idea that there was one advent of Christ. Let's talk about the advents a minute. You go to read Isaiah. Remember the passage that Christ read at the, the, um, the synagogue in Nazareth? He half stopped halfway through the passage. And he put the scroll down. Now, if you look at the original prophecy, it seems as though there's one grand coming of the Messiah. He's going to come and he's going to do this and this. And then he's going to declare the day of vengeance of God. He's going to restore the waste places and on and on and on. And Christ stopped before that point. Because what you find in the reality of Christ or God's eschatological calendar is there's really two phases to Christ's advent. The first advent, the second advent. And as you study the second advent, the second coming of Christ, you find that there are two phases to that as well. There's the first phase, which we call, in, in theological terms, the rapture. This is when Christ comes for his church. And how do you know that? Well, there are passages that talk about Christ's second coming, and the only way to be able to reconcile the passages, all the passages, on Christ's second coming is to realize there are two phases, because there are two very distinct descriptions of his second coming. One has to do with coming for the church. The other has to do in, with coming in judgment. Now, there's a lot of arguments on this, and we're going to sort through a lot of those when we get to the study on eschatology. But there are two phases to Christ's second coming. Where does the rapture come from? The, 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 the word for rapture is raptuo, rapturo. It's a Latin word. It means to snatch away. It means to snatch away. It's not found in the New Testament. And a lot of people want to rag on us and say, well, you know, this rapture, you know, you just made that up. That word doesn't appear in the New Testament, yada, yada. Well, let me tell you, the Trinity doesn't appear either, but do we believe it? Just because a word doesn't appear in the New Testament doesn't mean it doesn't exist. All right? It means to snatch away. And I'm gonna, I want to look at these key passages. We already looked at one of these. These, by the way, are the four key passages on the rapture in the New Testament. The four key ones. Now, it's hinted at in several other spots, but this is the passages that really will put it together for you if you get them. John 14, 1-3, what did Christ promise? I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. I'm going to take you back to my Father's house. All right? There, is there any indication in that passage regarding judgment, wrath? No. What is it? It's 
Christ coming to receive his own to himself. All right. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 is probably one of the most definitive passages on this rapture. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you not grieve as others do have no hope. What was the problem in the Thessalonian church? Well, Paul shows up, he preaches the gospel, and he tells them about Christ's second coming. He tells them about the blessed hope, the return of Christ. But Christ doesn't come back right away. And he doesn't come back right away. In the meantime, what's happening to people in the church? They're dying. So there's a whole concern. Well, what about all those people that died? Are they going to miss it? What happens to them? They're not a lot around when Christ comes again. Do, do, do they get forgotten? And Paul's saying, no, I, I want you to, I want you, I'm telling you this, so you don't grieve as others who have no hope. What's the people who have no hope? No hope of seeing these people again. Do you understand how devastating it is for a lost person to die? There's no hope. There's no hope. I was thinking about that the other night when I was going to sleep. I have people at work that don't know the Lord, and one of them is a Mormon. That's a tough crowd to talk to. And to realize that, you know, I almost want to sit around and say, you know, a hundred years from now, you're going to be in a place where there's no hope. You don't get out. You don't escape this thing. As Christians, we have hope. I listened to old Vance Havner when he was talking about his wife's death. Somebody said something and said, I hear you lost your wife. And he said, she's not lost because I know where she's at. Someone's not lost if you know where they're at. And Paul is telling the Thessalonian believers here, you know what? You don't need to be like those who have no hope. Don't be like the pagans. I don't want you to be uninformed, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Who fell asleep? The dead people. All right? And that's the wonderful thing. It's, it's interesting. When it talks about believers, it talks about sleep. It doesn't talk about death. It talks about sleep. What do you know about sleep? You wake up. For the believer, there's hope. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of the God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now some wag said, well, that's going to happen when Sunday morning, you know, wake up all the people in church. That's a joke. The dead in Christ. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. This is the rapture. What happens? Christ comes in the where? Air. And there's a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ. Who are those? Those are the people who have died. The believers will be resurrected. And then those of us who are still alive, what happens to us? We're caught up with them in the clouds and we go with the Lord back to heaven. Is there any indication here of judgment, Armageddon, wrath? No. This is why we, we, we go into this two phases of the second coming. There's a phase where the, where the church believers are caught up to be with Christ. 
And we go back to heaven with him. And then there's a second part of his second coming when he comes back in judgment. In flaming fire to take vengeance on those that know not God, as it says later in Second Thessalonians. Before the earth is going to burn up? No, not yet. That's the end of millennium. We'll straighten that all out. For security's sake, I wanted to mention that not everybody calls this two phases. Some people actually call the rapture as something totally separate. Right. Rather than have it as a heading under the second coming and then have like that and, you know, when he comes back for judgment, a lot of people will say there's the rapture and then there's the second coming because just so that people are knowledgeable about how it's defined, some some people just, I mean, it's the same doctrine will yeah. explain differently and there are different headings. So, mm-hmm. so don't get confused. You said that the earth isn't destroyed by the millennium. I thought it was the rapture, the tribulation, then the thousand years of Christ's reign on earth. Then the destruction of the world. The millennium is the thousand year reign. Oh no, I understand it, but I thought that during the tribulation, that's when God is judging the world and it's He doesn't he doesn't destroy No. No, he's not it's not remade for the millennium. It's after the millennium. It's after the millennium that there's a new heaven. And Revelation 20 talks about that. After the millennium, Revelation 20, the ch- Revelation chapter 20, the first few verses talking about the millennium. And then the last section is the great white throne. It talks about the heaven and earth being passed away. Revelation 21 starts out, John says, And I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heavens and first earth were passed away. So, so I'm sorry. go on. Um, is the dead in Christ are when Christ comes back for the first part of the only the believers. Right. No, I get that. Um, does that mean that we don't actually go to heaven until he comes back? No. You go to if you die right now. If you die right now, you'll be in heaven. This is your resurrected body. This is when you receive your physical body. Yes. If you die right now, you will be in heaven. You will not receive your physical glorified body until this time. Well, you'd be a soul, the real you. You'd be recognized. People know who you are. You don't wear name tags in heaven. People know who you are. You know, um, but you receive your glorified body at this time. And that's what this passage here talks about. So just to backtrack, then, who assigned the term the rapture? It came from the Latin text of um, Thessalonians, where it used rapturo. I think that's where it came from. I think that's where it came from. If I, I'm pulling that out of my the recesses of my mind, but it's a Latin word, rapturo, is where we get it. Yeah, to take away, to snatch away. Yeah, the Latin text. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have here in 1 Thessalonians is we have the promise of Christ coming for his church. And what do we find out? Well, all the, all the believers, all those who are believers, whether they have died or whether they're still alive, are going to be caught up together with Christ in the clouds to return to heaven. This is a continuation of 1 John, or not 1 John, but John 14, 1 through 3. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place, I will come and receive you to myself. All right? And that's what happens. So those of us who are alive, we are going to be caught up together with those that have died previously, all the resurrected saints. And this is of the church age. We'll talk about this in more detail 
um, in, in the eschatological um, section of the class. But we'll be caught up together with him. We'll go back to heaven and be with Christ. That is the rapture. I want to make just a quick note on we're, when it comes to certain, really a lot of eschatological things, we're, especially with the issue of glorified body, and you know, all we have to go on is where you know, Paul says that he has different bodies because of Christ. So we know that like, when we die, we're immediately in his presence. We also know that there's this whole doctrine of glorified body, that our bodies can be made new, cut up, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of, there's not a lot of detail that we have on, like, well, this is what it's going to be like. So we, like, we kind of just say, we have this doctrine, we have this doctrine, and we, we're kind of forced to put kind of a logical mm-hmm. conjecture on it, which we're okay doing, but any time we do that, um, theologically, it's just a good idea to say, hey, this is us applying our human logic to this. Uh, it's not explicit in Scripture. Uh, I say the same thing about the, the doctrine of the Trinity is absolutely imperative. I mean, it's, it's, it's so clear. But um, but there are certain things that, like, God has only given us but so much revelation on, and we've applied human logic to it. And we have to be so careful. Um, I think there are those who take even, you know, doctrine of uh, predestination and things like that that are absolutely clear in scripture and then take it to the next logical point and I say, you know what, probably but recognize that that's, that's conjecture and so I wanted to kind of throw that yeah. out there because this is, um, we're dealing with things of prophecy here and, and the key prophetic knowledgeable people in Jesus' day missed it completely yeah. they were the ones who seemed to know that one of the things that you'll find when we study prophecy is God has given us big picture he's given us the big picture He's not filled in every little detail. All right? And what the problem is, you go to Zondervan Bookstore and that, you find books filling in all of the details. And that, that may or, that's what somebody believes. Now, there are some things we know for certain, and prophetically, we can hang our hats on that, we can believe that, we can be convinced of that. But Dan's right. We can't fill in every single little itsy-bitsy detail. What exactly is your glorified body like? We have some hints, but we don't know for certain. Whatever it is, it's great. <laughs> All right. And the hands that we have are from the Jesus glorified body and what he did. Right. Dave. When you're talking about the rapture in the sense of most people think about it, you go back in history. You know who the theologian was at first? Clearly, uh. We're going to talk about that when we, when we start looking at this. Um, this in greater detail. One of the great, one of the great um, controversies is a lot of people say, well, this doctrine of the rapture thing is a relatively recent doctrine. The answer to that is yo, yes and no. Yes, if by that you mean that we started looking at it to understand it, it has been fairly recent. No, if by that you mean the early church didn't know about it. All right, it's a, it's a way with a lot of doctrines. You know, throughout church history, you see various periods of time where, where certain doctrinal issues were brought to the fore. Like one of the latest ones is the whole charismatic issue, the whole doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Does that mean that the early church didn't believe in the Holy Spirit? No, but they never fully developed the doctrine of spiritual gifts and things like that that we've had to deal with now. So, so an answer to that is, although a lot of our eschatological understanding is recent, it's only because we started studying it recently as a church. And, only, and because we see events happening that are starting to fill in the, a little bit of this picture. All right, does that make any sense there? 
It's not that the early church didn't believe this, but they didn't put it down into a creed and write books on it and things like that. If that makes any sense, what I just said. It'll be more clear when we get, get to that. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have a chronology. Yeah. 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 The Left Behind series may or may not be accurate. Most likely, it's not. But it's good to read. But you know, don't go get your theology out of that. All right. There's another passage here, Philippians 3, 20 through 21, that talks about Christ's second coming. Um, and it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What's this a promise of? Well, our citizenship is not down here. This is not where we belong in, as a believer. We're just passing through this, this world. Our citizenship is in heaven, and someday Christ is going to transform our lowly body to be like his. Now, what physiologically is that all about? Well, again, we don't know all the details. We can get some hints by looking at Christ's resurrection body. It'll be an eternal body. It won't be subject to death. It won't be subject to disease and decay, which is a good thing. You're not going to grow old in heaven. All right. So this is the promise that someday Christ is going to come and transform our body and make it like his. And then to hurry along here in First Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter of the Bible, um, in, cha- in verse 50, it says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What's he talking about? Well, your current physical body, the body you have now, cannot inherit the kingdom of God in the eternal state. Why is that? Because your body now is under the curse. It's, it's under the decay of, of death. All right? So you can't, this body is not going to cut it in heaven. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Some said that's a good verse for the nursery. It's another joke. I'm getting these jokes and nobody's catching them. You know, put that First Corinthians fifteen fifty one over the nursery. But we shall be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. changed. Someday your body, the body you have now, is going to be transformed by the power of God into something eternal. What's it going to be like? Well, you know, again, we get some hints. But it's going to be an eternal body. It's not going to be subject to decay and death and disease and the frailties of our current existence. It's going to be an eternal body that will never wear out. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What is one of the things that keeps you going in life? 
You're going to have an imperishable body someday. It's not going to die. It's not going to be subject to decay. It's not going to be weak. And when's it going to happen? When Christ comes again at this rapture. He's going to take us home. We're going to transform our bodies. And we're going to have a glorified eternal body to be with him forever. Very here. If you refer to Matthew 24, am I correct in assuming that there are no references in 24 to the rapture? That is correct. Matthew 24 does not refer to the rapture. We don't have time to develop that now. But Matthew 24 is referring to the second coming, not the, the second part of the second coming. All right, not the rapture. All right. So this is the rapture, and again, we'll develop this more fully. Now, when we talk about the rapture, I'm going to spend a lot of time on this just to let you know that theirs are out there, and if you pick up books, you're going to hit these terms. There's a lot of arguments and a lot of pages and a lot of trees that have been felled and died and turned to paper to produce books to talk about when is the rapture. And usually when we talk about the rapture, um, the real argument is in, in relation to the tribulation. What is the tribulation? Well, that's the final seven years of God's judgment on Israel. And the question people have is, okay, where do we as the church fit into that? Do we get taken out pre, before it? Is that when we're taken out? Are we taken out before God's judgment falls on the earth and before God does his work with the nation of Israel? Are we taken out before or are we taken out after it's all done? All done At the end, when the church is raptured. Or are we taken out partway through? There are some people that believe we're taken out partway through. They define this as the last trumpet. They say, well, look, you know, we got seven trumpets in Revelation. And then the last trumpet, when it blows, number seven, that's when the rapture occurs because it's talking about the last trumpet. Well, that's not really what the last trumpet means. If you were an Israelite, you would understand what the last trumpet meant. When you were in a camp out in those days, they would communicate via trumpets. And they would have certain trumpet sounds that would sound, that would let you know, okay, get ready to move out. Okay, get in line to move out. And then the trumpet would sound, move out. Same thing that happened in the Revolutionary War. You know, the fife and drum corps had nothing to do which is playing fifes and drums, it had to do with telling the army what to do. You'd march through the town and play a certain sound, a certain musical no, number, and that would tell the soldiers, okay, time for bed, time to get up. Remember in the old westerns, you know, blow the retreat, sound the retreat. You'd blow a trumpet to communicate. And what we're talking about here is there's a communication. There's the last trumpet that calls the whole assembly together. And that's what it's talking about. It's not talking about the last trumpet, number seven. Then there are some that believe in a partial tribulation. What does that mean? Well, only those who are waiting for Christ get to go up in the tribulation. The rest of the people get stuck here and have to go through it. That's really a nice one. If you're not looking for Christ, you might be left behind. Christians, believers. In other words, you know, these people would say, you know, if Christ came back right now, part of the class would be here because you're not looking for Christ's second coming. You're going to be stuck here. Some of us are going to go on. Most of you are going to stay. That's a, I think that's a bad, bad theology. Pre-wrath, that's a spin on this partial, right, or on the mid. Um, this was popular. Anybody know Marv Rosenthal, Friends of Israel? He bought into this. Basically what it does is splits the wrath of God into two pieces. The wrath of God against man and the wrath of man against man. And 
he says, well, we've been promised to be delivered from the wrath of God on man, but not necessarily from the wrath of man on man. And since the first part of the tribulation has to deal with wrath of man on man, we're going to have to go through that as a church. And sometime just before the end, we're raptured out. That, that's silliness. He's done all kinds of weirdness with the text to come up with that. And then there's some that believe there's no rapture at all. It's just a mythical doctrine. We're going to talk about this later. These are the covenant theologian type people. R.C. Sproul isn't one of those. You know R.C. Sproul? He doesn't believe in a rapture. All right? Those people say Christ comes again you know, and establishes the eternal state, and that's all there is to it. All right? There's no rapture. There's no none of this stuff. That's just a mythical thing. Now, we're going to talk about all of these in greater detail later on. I just wanted to mention here that there are all kinds of different spins on this. If you want to do some reading, it may be fun to do this. Go do some reading on this and see, see where you stand on it. But I believe, and again, here's, here's something you need to understand. When you, when you look at these different positions, is there any proof text that I can go to to show you which one's right? There's text, but not proof text. All right? What you have to do is you have to use your logical reasoning. And you have to test each one. And I think what you find is that the preponderance of evidence in the New Testament would point to a pre-tribulational rapture. The preponderance of evidence. That makes sense. That makes the most sense. We'll talk about this in greater detail in eschatology, but that makes the most sense. The post-tribulational doesn't make any sense because what Christ is going to do, he's going to come and he's going to receive us up in the clouds and then we're going to come right back with him and establish the kingdom. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense at all. And then who would enter the kingdom but only glorified people? We know that non-glorified people enter the kingdom. You've got all kinds of problems. And, and again, when you, when you put all the evidence together, you get out a, like a nice little yellow pad and you put on all of the evidences for everything... When it all sorts out, the first one makes the most sense from the text. Christ comes back, receives us to himself, and then at some time later, he comes back in judgment. Okay? A quick note on the preacher. One, probably the best thing we have for that is just the fact that we are, that we're supposed to be looking eminently, that, you know, that, it, that it could be at any moment. So if we're thinking, well, okay, it's going to be at least seven years. Um, then we don't have that would keep us from having the proper attitude right. towards the, you know towards the rapture. So somebody made a comment. One of my professors. He says, you know, I'm going to be pre-trib because of that. And he says, if we get halfway through through the uh, through the uh, tribulation and it's and he's not here yet, he's like, well then I'm going to be mid-trib. And he's like, then I'll be post-trib. He's like, call whatever you want. I'm looking for the coming of Christ as very eminent because that is what is biblical. He says, yes. that, is, that is the key thing. He says, we're looking at the evidence. We're saying it's probably pre-trib. He says, it's not real clear, but I know one thing. I'm supposed to be looking right now. Yeah. And so um, I think that's kind of the best rule of thumb. And, 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 and I think that's, 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 that's what you have to go with. That's what you have to go with. Because throughout the New Testament, it's any time, any time, any time. You've got to be ready at any time. Mm-hmm. And that makes the most sense. I'm, yeah? Don't you think we know anyway because the Holy Spirit is getting us ready for this? I mean, he's showing us the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Because he's showing us in my life. I'm not going to need Christ. Uh, well, it's 30 Yeah. And see, that, that's the whole... <laughs> 
<laughs> I like this lady. I like this lady. I like this lady. Yeah, I like her already. Yeah. But uh, but you, 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 what you've done is you've caught on to the point that the New Testament is trying to make. And the point is you've got to be ready at all times because you don't know when he's going to show up. You know, and if you've got this idea, well, the Lord's not going to come back, you know, until X date, you know, you could just goof off and horse around and just slough off. And then about, you know, a month or two before he comes back, get ready for him. No, that's not the way it works. We need to be ready at all times. Dave. The second coming is going to come sometime after the rapture. Because the rapture, and if you read like First John chapter um, two. Um, in 228 to 33, 1 John 3, 3, it talks about us being ready when Christ comes back so that we're not ashamed. All right? We want, as believers, we want to be ready when he returns so that we're not caught off guard, so we're not caught ashamed. Okay? It applies to both, but for the believer, there is the, the, the expectancy of being of taken home. It's a blessed event, not an event of judgment. Whereas for the unbeliever, it's an event of judgment. All right? But you're right in both cases. And, and if we understand uh, Matthew 24 and 25 correctly, um, even the second coming, the, the, the coming in Revelation, when it comes back to in judgment, even that is fuzzy as far as time goes. You might be able to know that sort of about when it's going to happen, but even in Matthew 24, Christ talks about several um, illustrations of being caught off guard. He says, you know, he says, it's sort of like the fig tree. You see the fig tree bloom, and you know the summer is near, even around the corner, but you know the exact day. And he says, it's like the days of Noah. They sort of had a general idea that something was going to happen, but what happened when the floods came? It took them all by surprise, and they got taken away in judgment. What about the, uh, the, the, the servant whose master is on a trip? And you know he's coming back, but you don't know exactly when. They didn't have cell phones in those days and you're going to show up at a time that you're not ready and what about the guy with the house full of goods and he knows that maybe he can be robbed but he doesn't know when and about the ten virgins who knew that the bridegroom was going to come but they weren't ready folks you got to be ready well, the, the, the reason I see why we uh, ought to focus more on the reaction of the second coming is because the church is leaving. We, the church, are going yeah. to leave in the rapture. We don't, therefore, technically speaking, need to look forward to the second coming because we won't be here to look forward to it. In a sense, yes, but in another sense, we need to know that it's going to happen because there's a lot of people we know that are going to be looking for that go. second part, not the first one. Um, let's look at the revelation really quick here. We've got about ten minutes left. This is when Christ returns to destroy the armies of the world and establish the millennial kingdom. This is the kingdom that the Israelites were looking for in the first advent when Christ came the first time. 
Some key passages on this, and I'm sorry we don't have time to go through them in great detail. But Revelation 19 is probably one of the great passages. What is that? That's the return of Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. And who's with him, by the way? We are. Kind of tough for us to be raptured and then come back with him, isn't it? No, that's not the imagery. The imagery there is that we are already in heaven and we come back with him. And by the way, we don't get to fight. He does all the fighting. We're, just going, we're sort of along as the honor guard, so to speak. He just needs to speak a word and that's all she wrote for the armies of the Antichrist. God's in charge. He doesn't just win, he smashes the opposition. But Revelation 19 talks about him coming back and what does he do? The marriage supper of the Lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready. And what is that a picture of? The millennial kingdom. He's coming back to establish his kingdom. And all of us who are believers, we get to rule with him. And that kingdom, that's part of our reward. We will rule and reign with Christ. Yes? So that makes us the army of heaven? We're part of those. We're part of those. Yeah, we're part of that. We're part of that. But we don't actually execute any judgment. That's up to God and the holy angels. They'll take care of that. We don't need to fight anybody. We're just with Christ. We're witnesses with Him. And we come back to Him and we rule with Him in the millennial kingdom. That's part of our reward as, as members of the church, the body of Christ. Part of our reward is that we will rule and reign with Christ. All right? Revelation 19 talks about his second coming. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10 talks about the flaming fire taking vengeance on those that know not God. That's the 2 Thessalonians 1 passage. The revelation is a time of judgment. God, or Christ comes back and executes judgment. He destroys the armies of the Antichrist. At the Battle of Armageddon, it says there are some places where the blood runs six feet deep. That's gross. I don't want to gross out Carol here. But that's gross when you think about it. He smashes the armies of the Antichrist. No casualties on our side. All the casualties are on the other side. And he establishes his millennial kingdom. We're going to talk about this in greater detail when we get to eschatology. But Christ is coming back to establish a kingdom. And why is that? Because that's what's been promised throughout the Old Testament. It starts when David is given a promise that on his throne is going to sit someone who will rule forever from the house of David, from the line of David. Um, Psalm chapter 2 talks about God who says, I'm going to set my king on my holy hill and no one's going to push him off. Psalm 89 talks about the second coming and the rule of Christ. Isaiah chapter 11 talks about the, the child is going to play in the den of the cockatrice and it's not going to bite him. It's going, to be, it's going to be a time of peace, a time of the, where the knowledge of God covers the, the world like the waters cover the ocean. It's going to be a time of blessing. And he's going to establish his kingdom, and, and Christ is going to have to do that, because it isn't going to happen any other way. Now, just as we talk about the rapture, we talk about the millennium, there are several views regarding Christ's return when it comes to the millennium. We'll develop these all in greater detail in eschatology, but just to mention them. There's the premillennial. What does that mean? Christ comes before the kingdom starts and he establishes it. And again, when you look at the scripture, the vast preponderance of the biblical evidence indicates that this is the correct understanding. 
Christ comes to establish the kingdom. He has to do that. We're not going to do it for him. He's going to do it. But then there's a crowd that call the post-millennial. What do they say? They say the church cleans up the world for Jesus. There's a group out there called Dominion Theology. I don't know if you ever heard that. Dominion Theology. Um, uh, Pat Robertson is one of these guys. Okay? I remember when he was running for president, he says, if you elect me president, we'll be well on our way to presenting the world to Jesus. The idea there is we're going to establish the kingdom. The church is going to take over the world and we're going to establish a kingdom. When we get it all cleaned up and all fixed up, then we'll just invite Christ to come down and sort of like take over as honorary king. Unfortunately, I think that's sort of nuts. I don't know where they come up with that. But we're not going to take over the world for Jesus. The other thing about post-millennials is, yeah, things keep getting worse. Yeah, how's it? like, oh, we're kind of in a slump right now. I remember, I have a set of tapes from a guy who, who uh, Gentry, that's his name, Gentry, and uh, he's talked about how, he's waxing on for uh, 20, 30 minutes in this message about how the church is winning and taking over the world and all of this. And I'm thinking, I want to know what that guy's smoking. I want some of it. Because I'll tell you, I don't see it happening out there. Boy, I'll tell you, he, I, what's he smoking? Can I get some? Um, and then there's the amillennial viewpoint. What's that? Well, these people believe there's no millennium at all. There's no literal, physical kingdom. We are the kingdom. We are the new Israel. When Israel crucified their Messiah, they forfeited their right to a future kingdom at all. And we are the kingdom. And so what has happens here is Christ comes back, there's a final judgment, and then the eternal state. There's no millennium at all. There's no future millennium. The problem with that view right there, folks, is you've got to sort of erase a big chunk of your New Testament to figure that one out. I remember somebody say, well, you know, this, this, uh, the Revelation, when it talks about the thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, that's just some indeterminate number. Well, then why does God repeat it seven times? And why is it that all the other numbers in the book of Revelation are accurate, right? You got seven trumpets, you count them. Seven. You got seven bowls, there's seven of those. And then it comes to 1,000. Well, that's just an indeterminate number. It may or may not be. That's, that's, that's a double standard when it comes to biblical interpretation. You don't want to go there. No questions are dumb. I'm just thinking about it. I mean, Christ comes back and takes the church, cleans up the world, you know. So, for the thousand years, only believers in Christ. There are other unbelievers born during that time. There's a lot of unbelievers born during... The, the only believers enter the kingdom, either us in glorified, our glorified bodies, we rule with him, or believing Israel. They're going to be remnant alive after the end of the tribulation. They're going to be alive physically. They're going to enter the kingdom, and they're going to repopulate the earth. Okay, so the thousand years is to give the Jewish people a chance to get together? So God's made promises, and he's going to keep them. Because God's fulfilling his promises to Israel. That's why does God why does God do anything he does? Because he said he saw. I mean I just I don't know why he did it that way, but he did. That's his promise. And God keeps his promises. Alright? That's where it talks about the dragon will be let loose for a time. Yeah, and it's gonna deceive those who are born. And stop and think about that. You know, all the psychoceramics, that's psychologists, crackpots. All right? Psychoceramics. 
What are they telling us? Well, you know, the problem with society is, you know, we got a bad society and all the ills of society, blah, 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 you know. All right, so God says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a perfect society for a thousand years. I'm going to give you absolute perfection. All right, there's not going to, sin's not going to be allowed. Rampant sin is not going to be allowed. I'm going to give you peace, plenty, prosperity, joy, everything you want. And what's going to happen at the end? They're still going to rebel. We're incorrigible. Final slide, and we're done. Open door. Where do we stand at open door? Well, we believe that preponderance of the Scripture, and hopefully I'm speaking for Dan here as well. I put this in before I asked him this, so hopefully he's not a amillennialist here. But we believe in church that the preponderance of biblical evidence says that Christ is going to come back before the rapture. He's going to come back before the millennium to establish his kingdom. There's going to be a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. We're going to reign with him. And at the end of that, we're going to have the great white throne judgment followed by the eternal state. That's the general big picture. All right. Next week, we're going to talk about the personality of the Holy Spirit. And let me ask you a question. I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you to think about this and come back next week with, uh, after you're thinking about it. Pretend that you were... Remember Mark and Mindy? Yeah. That also Mark and Mindy? What, what planet was he from? Mark. Mark. Okay. Mark from Mark. All right. Pretend you're from the planet Mark. You arrive on Earth and your job is to try and understand humans. And all you have is what you see on television. What would your assessment of the Holy Spirit be? Think about that. If all you had was TV and you were Mark from Mark... And you had to figure out what is the Holy Spirit. If you're, if you're saying, what's this Holy Spirit thing? How would you answer? It'd be interesting. Let's close in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this day, opportunity of study. And I thank you, Father, for the promise of your return that you are coming again. And we look forward to that day. And I pray that we would all be ready so that we would not be ashamed when you show up. In Christ's name, amen.